Can you think of the time in your life when you felt most like a failure? I don't mean to stir up bad memories, okay, on a Sunday morning, but the truth is all of us experience moments of failure through our lives, some big, some small, some real, and some just imaginary. Some, sometimes it's not an actual failure, it's just something that we internalize. But here's my guess, that if you have a moment of failure, or perhaps many, that come to mind when I say that, that it's not coming to mind merely as a passing kind of memory, but it's something that's lodged very deeply in your heart. Because that's what failure does. Failure for us is not something that we pass off, something that, uh, rather, it is something that we internalize, and really it makes up our sense of identity. It cuts us to the very heart. That's what failure does. Now, my life is littered with moments of failure, again, some bigger and some smaller, but there are certain times in my life where I'll never, ever forget the sting of that feeling. And so one of those, one in particular, I was 17 years old, a junior in high school. I was the quarterback at Conroe High, and we played Kingwood one night. And at Kingwood that night, I threw five interceptions in a single game. And we lost, of course, but we lost only narrowly. And it was my... It was my mistakes that actually made up the difference. I was the reason we lost, very obvious. Now, you may hear a story like that and just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's just a game. And that's true. But for a young man who had built his entire identity on that game, I was absolutely crushed, absolutely crushed. I'll never forget that moment, probably as long as I live. But see, that's what makes some failures worse than others when they're tied into the sense of our identity of who we are. If you asked me to fix your transmission, I would fail at that. But I wouldn't feel bad about it because I don't even know what a transmission looks like. I mean, it's somewhere under the hood, I'm pretty sure. But auto repair is not my thing. I'm a failure in that. Big deal. I don't care. But now if I fail as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, where does that failure go? It goes right here. Because that's who I am. And those failures threaten my identity. If I'm not that, then who am I? If I fail at this, then am I worth anything? That's why failure can can be such a painful thing for us. It, It threatens the sense of our identity, who we are, or who we think we're supposed to be. Now, we're going to look today, what Andrew read for us from Luke 5, we're going to look at a story about failure. But it's not a story uh, that's going to make us sad or leave feeling woeful today. It's actually a story that's going to encourage us because the failure that we witness in the Bible, especially in the life of a man named Simon Peter, that failure is where he actually meets God in his most gracious place. Benton, Benton, Joe, come on in. Come sit right here. Come on in. We know them. We know they're good. Um, And here's what I want us to see, not just for Simon Peter in his case, but for you and me, that in the place of our deepest failure, we find God's grace to be richest and most wonderful. And it's God's grace that actually changes our lives. And so we see in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, a fairly well-known story that it happened while the crowd was pressing in around Jesus and listening to the word of God, that he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Well, Jesus saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked Simon to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. 
Now, this is a story that begins as a, I mean, in terms of a, a normal day for Jesus, it seems pretty normal. He's teaching. A large crowd has gathered. They're pressing in. They want to be around him. They want to hear what he has to say and perhaps touch him and be healed by him. And Jesus, on his part, is getting so pressed against the water that he actually needs to get into a boat and push away a little bit so that everyone can see and hear him. So there's a practical uh, a part of this story that Jesus just needs to create a little distance here. But there's no coincidence that he gets into Simon's boat. We see that? that Luke, Luke is careful to mention that part, that it's Simon's boat. Now, this is Simon Peter who we better know as just Peter, Peter who became an apostle, one of the central figures of the entire Bible. That's Simon right here, Simon Peter. And he's with, we find out, he's with James and John, who also became chief apostles of the early church, central figures in the Bible, authors of some of the New Testament. So these are big dogs, Peter, James, and John. But right here in Luke 5, they're just fishermen. They're just fishermen who are washing their nets. Now, real quickly, to be a fisherman in this day and time, that was a fairly normal occupation in the time of Jesus, but it wasn't a career of high esteem. There was nothing great about being a fisherman. No one esteemed you as anything if that was your life's work. You were relatively poor. You worked very hard, of course, but you often had little to show for it. If you've ever been fishing, you know this, that some days are a little lean and some days are full. You never really know what you're going to get when you go out on the lake. And that was their life. Everybody back in this time smelled. You know, there's no deodorant, there's no showers. But the, the fishermen, I assume, had, a, had a, an, an even greater smell than the rest of the population. And again, if you've ever been fishing, you come home, you know that smell, right? It's just, there's just something unique about that. And so Peter, James, and John smelled worse probably than the smelliest of people in their day. And there was no upward mobility for them. I mean, think about this. There, there, you know, there was no monster.com or, or what, you know, there was no job search opportunities for them. If you were a fisherman, it's because your dad was a fisherman and you adopted the family business from him and he got it from his dad before him. And so you were in a sense stuck in that reality. If you were a fisherman, that's what you were. Do your best at it. Try to make a living doing it, but there's nowhere else to go. There's no dream beyond that for you. And so the point in, in all of this is these guys, Peter and James and John, they were not raging successes to begin with. There was really nothing about them that Jesus or anybody else would have been drawn to them to make them great or to, or to call them great. They're just blue-collar guys. But look what happens in verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking to the crowd, he said to Simon, Simon Peter, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say, and I will let down the nets. Now, it doesn't come across in this text as very obvious, maybe, but what Jesus is asking Simon to do is not only impractical, but it's actually very foolish. Uh, these are professional fishermen. Keep in mind, they, you know, in the Bible, they never seem to catch any fish. I mean, you know, but... But at least, I mean, this is their vocation. This is their job. And so they're out there working, and uh, we, we catch them at the beginning of the story. What are they doing? They're washing their nets. That means that the day of work is over. They're washing their nets. They're putting everything in its proper place so that they can go home and go to bed. And what we find out that they have to show after this long night of work, Peter says, we caught nothing. It was just one of those lean times. We caught nothing. 
Now, I've always wondered why they would go fishing at night. Maybe you go night fishing. I've never been fishing at night. It just doesn't seem really like the, the, the wisest thing to do. But see, in this time and place, they didn't have fishing poles. They didn't have, te- they didn't have technological advancement. They had nets. And those nets, they would drag along the top water. And so if you wanted to catch fish, you would go at night in the cool of the evening when the fish would come up to top water to feed. And that way, when you dragged your nets, you would catch the fish as they fed. You didn't go fishing in the daytime when the heat would bear down and all the fish would leave top water and go into the depths, right, where it's safer and where it's cooler. And so here in Luke 5, when Jesus, the carpenter, not the fisherman, Jesus, the carpenter, gets into the boat and he says, let's go out in the heat of the day into the deepest water and let's put the nets back out there. You see how impractical that is? And really foolish in terms of the profession, in terms of where the fish are going to be. Jesus is saying, let's go do something quite foolish. Now, we have the benefit of knowing that Jesus always has a plan. I mean, Jesus knows what he's doing every single time. But I want you to just, for just a moment, try to imagine the frustration of Simon Peter in this instance. We see it in verse 5. You, you, kinda, you almost hear the frustration coming off the page in his voice. Master, we worked hard all night and caught what? Nothing. We've got nothing to show for our labor. We fished all night and we failed. That's the the essence of what he's saying. We've got no means of income today, right? We have no fish to take into the market to sell, to feed our family. We've got nothing. These are not salaried employees who are drawing paychecks, direct deposit. No. If they don't catch fish, then they don't have money and they don't feed their families. And, and Peter is trying to communicate to Jesus, listen, we were out there all night. There's no fish out there. If there were, we would have caught them. But faithful Peter, he calls Jesus master, and he says, because you say so, I'll go. Because you say so, I'll do it. Now, this, the story just reads so true to life, doesn't it? Because we can all relate to this. All of us have obeyed our parents or perhaps obeyed God when we really didn't want to, when we really didn't feel like it. And that's what Peter's doing here. I mean, it, it, almost like through gritted teeth, he says, because you say so, I'll go. I'm going to honor you, Jesus. I revere you. I'll do what you say, but I don't really want to. And that's when the miracle happens, right? And we would have, if, you, if you'd never opened a Bible in your life, you could probably assume what's about to happen. Verse 6, when they had done this, when they had dropped their nets in the deep water, as Jesus said, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So many fish that the nets began to break and the boats began to sink. This is Jesus, the Son of God, exerting his divine power over nature. Jesus did a lot with water. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He stilled and calmed the storm, remember, on the water. When, uh, with just the sound of his voice. And here in the lake, Jesus commands the fish. I mean, they're practically jumping into the boat here. This is a clear and abundant miracle. But is the purpose of the miracle really about fish? I tend to think that this, this story has almost nothing to do with fish. That that's not what Jesus is trying to show Peter, James, and John here. And that's not what Luke is trying to show us as he records it for us. Jesus' goal can't simply be that he wants to impress these young men with his divine power. Look what I can do. Jesus never did that. 
And I don't think his goal is even just pity. You know, these guys have worked hard. They've caught nothing. Let me go supply for their need here. Let me do them a solid. I, I don't think that's it either. See, what Jesus is doing in this miracle, pretty much what he did in every miracle, the point of every miracle he ever performed, he's trying to point people to himself. He's trying to show us, show the disciples who he really is, the divine son of God and what he's capable of and what he came to achieve. That's why in the, in the gospel of John, John calls Jesus's miracles signs. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs, just like we've got signs around the room and around the building. Because what a sign is, see, a sign is not the reality. A sign is something that points to the reality. A sign is something that shows us something greater, right? If you see a sign on the highway that says Jackson 30 miles, we all know instinctively that the sign is not Jackson. The sign is pointing us. It's telling us where and what we're coming up on, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. When he brings these fish into the boat, it's a sign. It's meant to point Peter and James and John, specifically Peter, to himself. He's trying to show them who he really is. And you know what? Peter gets it. He recognizes it. Peter didn't get everything right, but he gets it right here. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw the catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. When Peter sees the catch of fish, what does he do? He doesn't start counting fish. Maybe what would be instinctive to me, that's not what he does. He falls down at Jesus' feet and he bids him to go away. Depart from me, Lord. Why? Because I'm a sinful man. Now, doesn't that seem like a strange response? Of all the things Peter might have done and said in this moment, to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, go away from me? And yet it's appropriate because here's the story. I'm talking about a story of failure. The point of this story is not that Peter was a failed fisherman. Okay? The point is that he was a failed man. And that was the place of his recognition that when he came into contact with God, when, when Peter recognized that Jesus was no man, but that this was God among us, when Peter came to that place of recognition, he did the only thing that made any sense to him. He fell apart because he knew how deep his own sin was. He knew his failure at the deepest level. And he said, Jesus, don't, don't even be in my presence. I'm, I'm not worthy of you. He's a failed man. And that's the point. And you know, that's a recurring theme throughout the Bible. Back in Exodus, the people of Israel, when they, had, uh, when they were journeying through the wilderness, they said to Moses, their leader, you go talk to God on our behalf. Do not let him talk to us. We cannot handle him. We cannot be in his holy presence. Go and be our advocate for us. They were afraid. When Isaiah, in the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he encounters God in the temple, God in his fullness, Isaiah's response is, Woe is me. I am ruined, he says. For I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He fell apart. 
John, the same John we see in this story, who became the Apostle John, who wrote a part of the New Testament, including Revelation. John, in Revelation, who was a very close personal friend and disciple of Jesus, but when John saw Jesus, the glorified Christ, in the book of Revelation, John says, when I saw him, I fell down like a dead man. I fell on my face. See, what, what happened to those men is what's happening right here in Luke 5 to Peter. That in the presence of God, in the presence of, of, of pure holiness and righteousness and power, he's undone. He has no business being in the presence of Jesus. And he says, please depart from me. Depart from me, why? Not because Peter didn't want him. Not because he didn't want to be with Christ, but because he didn't belong in his presence and he knew it. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinful man. I don't belong. Okay? Now, here's the main point. It, what we see in Peter, what we see in Isaiah and the people of Israel and John, that recurring theme, that's not just for them. That's not just a bygone era. Oh, God was really holy and angry back then, but now, you know, he's not that way anymore. No, no, no. What we see in these guys is central to what it means to be a Christian. This is absolutely central to what it means for us to be a Christian because the truth for Peter is the same truth that permeates my own life, and it's true for you too, that we are incapable of earning God's acceptance. We are incapable of making ourselves worthy of being in his presence. We are, just like Peter, we are sinful to the core, which means we have not honored and worshipped and loved and obeyed God as we should. No matter how much we perhaps have tried, we have all failed, sinned, Romans 3 says, and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have lived up to the standard of God's righteousness. Jesus said it like this. Jesus said, the light has come into the world. He was talking about himself. The light has come to the world, but men prefer darkness rather than light. That's the condition of our hearts, that we run from the light because we're sinners. Paul said that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of of this world. John, who in 1 John wrote to us about sin, and he said, listen, if you say that you are without sin, then you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Meaning, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, then you cannot know God. It's a prerequisite, John says. And that's exactly what Peter saw in himself in the boat that day. Jesus, I'm unworthy to be in your presence. I'm a sinful man. Now, if Jesus and Paul and John and Peter and Isaiah, if they're all right about the condition of their own hearts and the condition of man, then the question for us has to become, okay, what hope now do we have? If the conclusion, when we, when we stand face to face with Christ, and we all will one day, if the conclusion is that we're undone and we fall apart, then what hope do we actually have to measure up? What hope do we have to be anything other than a failure? Because that's the essence of this story, not that I failed once in football, or actually many times. Not that we've even failed in more serious matters, maybe as parents or as spouses, where we failed you know, people that we love. Okay, those are significant, but at the root of our problem as human beings is that we failed God. That we've not measured up, we've not lived up, we, there's no ladder that we can climb to get up to Him. And even if there was, we wouldn't climb it, we wouldn't be able to, because we're not good enough. Our hearts are corrupt. That's the problem. That's bad news. And therefore, what's our hope? Well, the hope, of course, is, uh, we've got it up behind me here. It's, there, there's a word that to me is the most precious word in the English language. It's the word grace. It's a single word 
that gives us not just hope, not just a, a you know, uh, incremental improvement maybe. No, it's actually a word that changes everything about us and about life itself. Grace, because grace means that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Grace means that, uh, that God's love compelled him to act on our behalf to do something for you that you could not do for yourselves. That's what God has done for us. He showered his grace upon us. Years later, Peter, the same Peter, wrote in 1 Peter these words. He said that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Let me say that again real quick. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. When the Bible speaks of human beings, the Bible, I love this, how clear the scripture is, that the scripture does not tell us that there's something in us that's really good and pure and if we could just activate it, then we would make ourselves acceptable. God would love us. God would let us into heaven. It's in there if you can just tap into it. That's what popular culture says, but that's not what the Scripture says. When the Scripture talks about human beings, it does not give us any hope within ourselves. It uses words like lost, ungodly, sick, dead, enemies of God, children of wrath. That's my favorite. Children of wrath, my goodness, without hope in the world. When the Bible talks about us, it says very clearly, in no uncertain terms, if left to ourselves, we are in an entirely hopeless state. No matter how religious we try to be, no matter how hard we try, no matter how sincere our hearts are, if we have sinned, then we, we, we stand guilty and condemned before a holy and righteous God who refuses to sweep sin under the rug. God is not unjust so as to shrug his shoulders at sin because he's, a, he's just such a softy that he can't help but love us, and so it's no big deal that you sin. God, God, that's not his character. He's righteous. He always does what is right and just, and therefore, the only hope we have is that that righteous God would intervene for us, and that's what he's done. In all the bad news that the Bible tells us about our estate, we are then bombarded with great news. And the great news is so great that it overshadows the bad news. It makes the bad news almost disappear entirely in the, in the pure light of what God has done for us, that he didn't minimize your sin. He didn't sweep your sin under the rug and call it even. He absorbed it for you. It had to be dealt with. It had to be penalized. And so Jesus Christ took that penalty in our place. He absorbed it. That's what Peter said, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's how seriously God takes sin, that he would have to actually put it upon his own son in order to deal with it, in order to do away with it. And he would love us enough to do just that, that Jesus Christ on the cross, the physical pain of the nails and the crown, it's hard to imagine, but it's nothing compared to the pain of internalizing our sin that it might be done away with. All of God's eternal justice poured out in that moment on Christ. And he did that for us. And so Jesus took the penalty and he paid it for you so that in place of that failure, we are actually now counted as righteous. 
God, when God, we, our, our kids are in elementary school, they have clips. I don't know if y'all are familiar with this system, behavior clips. Did you move your clip up da- today or did you move your clip down? At the bottom is red. You don't want to get on red. Red means you're actually, I don't, you know, I don't even know what that says about you. But, okay, you don't want to get on red, okay? But then there's gold at the top, all right? Now, you know, I don't, even, I don't know if a kid has ever gotten gold. That's, like, that's the standard. I'm not sure if, ever, if, if it's ever been reached. But, you know, we try to hover around in the middle. The middle's good, you know, green, green and blue, right? Well, the truth, I mean, what the Scripture says about us, we were on red, we were unworthy. No matter, listen, no matter what your church attendance looks like, apart from Jesus Christ, we're red. We're at the very bottom. We are unworthy. We're just like Peter. We're falling apart in the face of God's righteousness. But Jesus Christ, listen, by His grace, He did not bring you up to green, and now it's up to you to maintain it. Be good tomorrow, because you're forgiven. Jesus took you all the way up to gold. Jesus brought you into a place where now when God the Father looks at you, He sees Christ Himself. He, act, he sees what Jesus has done for you. Have you earned that? Do you deserve that? No, that's the whole point. You have it as a gift of God's grace. So to become a Christian is to do something totally counterintuitive because it's something that we have to acknowledge. We don't earn our way into it. We don't prove ourselves to God. We don't climb a religious ladder up to Him by being good enough. A Christian is someone who has utterly failed and we own it. We confess it. We don't try to hide it away. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves for themselves to cover up their nakedness. They were trying to hide who they really were and who they discovered themselves in their hearts to be. And oh, we do that all the time. I try to hide from other people and even from God who I really am. But to be a Christian is just to lay it bare like Peter, to fall apart and say, get out of my presence, I'm unworthy of you. That's, that is fundamental to what it means for us to be a Christian. And that's hard for maybe us to stomach because none of us wants to be a failure. None of us wants to acknowledge that we're not good enough. But if you don't do it, then you can't receive the grace that God came to give us as failures. You can be very religious and try your best and try to improve day by day and year by year. That's, that's, that's one choice, of course, but you'll never know the grace of Jesus in that case because grace only comes in the place of our deepest sin and failure. And so it's in the harsh light of that reality that we see the awesome grace of a Savior. And see, now, in spite of our unworthiness, God treats you as if you had never sinned. He treats you the way He treats Jesus, as perfect and holy. That's how He looks at you now. And that's what makes grace a gift. The word grace in the, in the Bible, it's the Greek word, it literally means gift. Because it's something so great, so wonderful, that you couldn't earn it. You can't earn a gift. You can only receive it, and we receive it by faith. Faith in Christ for what He has done. We stand on His goodness, and we no longer have to depend on our own. Now, that is a grace that we believe saves us, but it's also a grace that transforms us. It's not, for us, it's not enough to say, I, I believe in Jesus, I've got my ticket to heaven. But now, for every day that God allows me to live and breathe on this earth, I am being transformed by that same grace because that's what he came to accomplish. Now, I'm guessing that you've heard all this before. I hope you have. I hope you've heard this before. But here's the truth I find in myself. And so maybe it's true for you too. I believe in Jesus. I became a Christian when I was 16. I trusted Jesus' grace for my salvation, right? And yet for me, it is a daily struggle, a daily battle to be transformed by it. I believe it, but has it permeated my heart in such a way that it's actually changing how I think, what I choose, how I speak, 
and how I live, how I view the world. Is it changing those things from the inside out? That's the question I want us to kind of wrap up on. And so I want us to use a, a real-life example, a little case study here, because it's something that has been uh, prevalent in the news, so maybe you've seen it. It's been an interesting test for me to watch this story uh, this week. It's tested the condition of my own heart. I'll show you how. There's a, a story that's been uh, uh, in heavy in the news cycle about a sports doctor who has just been sentenced to life in prison for years and years of sexual assault. Um, I think over 150 young athletes, at least, that we know about, he assaulted uh, over the course of a couple of decades. Finally, the accusations came to light, were made known public. He went on trial, and this week he was sentenced to, I think, between 40 and 150 years of prison. Uh, It's an awful story. There's no way around it. But there's been a really bright light in the midst of this story. And the bright light has a name. Her name is Rachel Den Hollander. I don't know if you've seen this. I want you to look it up if you haven't. Rachel was the first person to go public with the accusations against this man. A, a very courageous and difficult thing for her to do. The first one to go public. And because she was the first, she was given the floor to speak at his sentencing. And I'm just going to read from her a short quote, what she was able to say to this doctor who had abused her. She said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. It's amazing, right? But here's, here's the truth for me. This is a story. I, I've been watching this, and it really tests what I believe about myself and what I believe about Jesus. And here's how. I look at this man, and honestly, I look at all the awful things this man has done, and by contrast, I feel pretty great about me. I mean, I look at him and I think, man, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I, you know, I, I make my mistakes just like everybody else, of course. But I'm not like this guy. This guy's a monster. I'd never do what he's done. I'd never do that. Right? But in that moment, in that state of mind, in that frame of mind, where is my confidence? Where's my sense of identity? Where's my justification for life? Is it in Jesus? Or is it in me? Is it in my own sense of goodness? That, you know, now I'm, not, I'm not perfect, of course, but I'm not like that guy. And as long as I can look at someone who is worse than me, who I perceive as being worse than me, I feel pretty good. And the truth, the condition of my own heart is I, I, I look at people and I come to conclusions about myself that pacify me because the truth is I wake up every single day desiring to measure up and be good enough on my own even though I know that Jesus has done that for me. It's just, it's just my heart. And I can't be the only one who struggles with this. Let me just, let me just give you a, a, a quick little quiz here. If you ever look down on other people, if you ever judge other people harshly, if you ever gossip about others, if you ever compare your own motives and your behaviors to the behaviors of other people, what are you doing in that case? You are making a statement that your goodness is sufficient for you. 
I'm making a statement that I, in my own goodness, am good enough because at least I'm better than you fill in the blank. And in that case, we are not depending upon Jesus to be our goodness. We're not depending on Jesus to justify us. I'm trying to justify myself by looking at others. As long as I can find somebody worse than me, then I'll be justified. I'll be good enough. But listen, what Rachel Denhollander said to her accuser, and she's basically saying what the scripture says. And so when I quote her to say, listen, the gospel extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Am I more worthy of that grace than this sports doctor who's on trial? Now, I haven't done all he's done, right? What he, he's ruined more lives than I've ruined. You know, of course, of course, right? right, right. But listen, if, it's, if, it's, if, if somehow it's more true for me than it is for him, then it's not grace. Because I've contributed to it. I've earned it. I've proven myself worthy. And therefore, I've not fallen on my face in the same way that Peter does. I have not acknowledged the true depth of my need and my sinful failure. And therefore, I'm only using Jesus' grace in a cheap and periodic kind of way. Just when I need it. Just when I feel like I've really failed, then I'll turn to him. But I'm not living day by day standing upon it as the foundation of my identity. It's not who I really am. Does that make sense? Now this, y'all, this is where grace has to transform us. I want to say that it's, if you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, he is gracious to bring you eternal life in his name. You don't have to be good enough beyond that because he's good enough for you, right? Your eternity is secure in that. But day by day, as we live and breathe on this earth, as God has given us the grace to live until one day he calls us home, how does that grace change me? It's got to sink into my heart. I can no longer see the world the way I used to see it. I can no longer have this system of trying to measure up where it all depends on me. And you know what? If you live, if I live in that old way of of self-justification, self-righteousness is a good word for it, then when I succeed, guess what? I become insufferably arrogant. And I look down on others who can't measure up to me. There's no such thing as a, as a humble and godly self-righteous person. It doesn't exist. So when I succeed, I become arrogant. When I fail, I go into despair and self-pity because it all depends on me. But what has Christ done for us? When we succeed, when we do something that pleases and honors God, we don't get the credit for that because in Christ, he's made me righteous. It's to his credit. And when I fail, I fall upon his grace because he has not counted my failures against me. He's absorbed them upon himself. Do you see how much better that is? So that's why Martin Luther said about 500 years ago, it's one thing to believe the gospel, but we've got to hammer it back into our brains every single day because we forget. We forget. And so it's possible that you have trusted Jesus to save you, and yet your sense of identity still depends on your own successes and your own failures or in how you compare to others. And the gospel has come to destroy that, that you stand firmly now on one person's record Jesus' record, not yours. Jesus' goodness, not mine. And in that case, listen, if it's you, if you're driving this train, if you're the one doing this, then the best you can hope for, I said it earlier, is moral improvement. You can maybe do a little better tomorrow than you did today, maybe. But in Christ, see, Christ doesn't bring improvement. That's not the game he plays with us. He brings transformation. He changes our hearts. That's what he came to do. Because of our unworthiness, Jesus looks upon us in his great love 
And he says to you what he said to Peter. Don't be afraid. Is it true that, that we're unworthy of him? Yes. But don't be afraid. Don't fear. Get up. Follow me. This is why I came. I came. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He came to give grace to sinners. Isn't that good news? So get up. Follow me. And Jesus says, I'll make your life a trophy of my grace. Not a trophy of your own goodness and achievements, but a trophy of my grace forevermore. That's how we experience transformation. When we put all our weight, we shift all our weight onto him. He'll change our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we, I hope this, this morning that we are encouraged, even if we have to look in, into the mirror, as it were, and call ourselves failures, if we have to be honest about what we really bring to the table this morning, Lord, it's not good. And that's hard for me to, I, I'm, I'm terrified of failure. I hate the thought of being a failure. But Lord, that's the Christian message. That's what we're, that's what we're doing here right now. That in, a, in the place of our deepest failure, Lord, that's the place where your grace is most wonderful, is richest and most precious to us. That's how you set it up, Lord. You don't call us to dust ourselves off and try harder next time, Lord. You call us to look at a man who died on a cross that he might absorb our failure, our sin, and call us righteous instead. Father, if that's true, and it is, then Lord, let that grace Get deep into our hearts. Let's stop playing games of, of, um, of measuring up, of comparing, of judging others who don't live up to our standard. Father, what, what standard? We've all fallen short of your glory. We all need your grace and mercy. And Lord, we don't deserve it. So Father, if you would bring us, if you would lower us to that place, then, Father, would we be able to also recognize how you've raised us? That in Ephesians it says that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You have so esteemed us by the virtues of your Son that now we have every grace that you have to offer. Father, would you make that to really dwell in our hearts by faith? And, Father, in the places where perhaps we are arrogant because we think we're better, or in the places, Lord, where we are in despair because we don't measure up. Would you bring us, Lord, to the cross where all of it was dealt with. Our pride was dealt with. Our self-pity was dealt with. Our despair over our sin, Lord, was finalized when Jesus Christ bled and died for us. And we can be transformed now into newness of life. Father, I pray that we would not take this lightly. This is, the, this is the absolute and central reason that we exist, to know your grace and, and that our lives, like I said, that we might become trophies of grace. That like Peter, his, his new mission for life, from now on you'll be catching people. You're going to make my grace known to the world. Father, would you, would you enliven us to that mission that what we've experienced would, would propel us now into a life of great fruitfulness? to share this grace that we know we don't deserve. Father, we need hearts saturated with this if we're ever going to experience the change you came to bring us. And so we pray let it be right now in Christ's name.